Well, campaigns are a little like a drug for political insiders. It all comes down to the excitement and tension of the moment that's fast approaching. Many of the big decisions are actually already set, but are they set in stone? Jamie, Kathleen and David have all been in this moment before and they're here tonight to help us understand. You, I, listen, you've got to be getting excited, right? I mean, this is what you live for. Yeah, elections, that's right. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. hundred and some odd days left till you do. Who's counting, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess we should preface this, David, by this discussion we're going to have, that things can change and that things aren't set in stone yet. Things have been changing, in fact, rapidly in the Canadian political context, and I think all the parties are probably reassessing some of the assumptions that they had a year ago. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's start. We'll sort of section this off, and we'll start with paths to victory, which is a nice little phrase that uh, a lot of insiders use when they're trying to plan out a, a campaign, and they're looking for paths to victory, and there are all kinds of different ones. But why don't you each give us... Uh, the one that you think is, is either the most important or most interesting, the first one that comes to mind. David? Well, I mean, for the Liberal Party, I think uh, it's fairly clear where their path to both majority and then possible pluralities, if not a majority, come from. They have to sweep Atlanta, Canada. They have to do extremely well in Ontario. And they have to do better in Quebec probably by owning the Federalist vote in the province of Quebec and forcing the Bloc and the NDP to fight it out for the Nationalist vote, do better in Quebec than they've done for five elections. Mm -hmm. And with the, all the new seats in, in Canada, they have to find a way to break into the urban West. It's very difficult to find a Liberal victory that does not include more seats than normal in the Winnipegs, Vancouver's, Edmonton's and Regina's and Saskatoon's. Tall order, with very the possible order. exception of Atlantic Canada, which mm -hmm. looks very good for them. Jamie. I think the interesting path to victory, Peter, is one that a lot of people haven't thought of for a long time, and that's Mr. Mulcair's path to victory, not someone that people were necessarily thinking would uh, make it direct to the Prime Minister's office. I know Kathleen was, but lots of Canadians work, and all of a sudden people are seeing him in a new light. At fairly late in the campaign, but still with lots of time left before Election Day. So how does he spend his summer? How does he get people who haven't even thought of voting for him before to vote for him as a Premier Notley did in, in, in Alberta? And can he pull that off? A lot of parts of the campaign, the ground game and so on, a bit overrated we've seen lately, can win without them. It'll be interesting to see if he can persuade Canadians of that. So the other parties will be watching him very carefully over the summer well, to and see how what to do and how to stop that, right, if he's successful. Mm -hmm. and sometimes you, yeah, and sometimes it's hard to stop a runaway train. But I think that I think that all strategists, when they first look at what their path to victory is, they're looking for the most efficient path. It's like a runner. You always want to take the inside track. But in politics, it doesn't work that way. There's regional fights um, that are happening all across the country. So what organizers look, are we growing or are we saving the furniture? And as David uh, rightly mentioned, that things are fluid right now they're changing. Um, I think that what Mulcair will need to do in this election is see how he can solidify some of the strength that he's seeing, um, uh, grow that universe of voters. You want to look at the number of people that are looking towards the NDP or whoever's party and attract more and more. And if you have a, a limit on your universe, then you're, there's no capacity for you to grow. And that's a problem. And I think that's what we'll be seeing with the Conservatives right Peter, now, I, their I ability to grow. Sorry, sorry, sorry Kelly. I, I don't think we're used to this level of fluidity. We're used to events taking place in a campaign which caused people to change and adjust. But normally right now, the campaign chair, the campaign manager, campaign director's job is to get people to stop from thinking about changing things mm. and just get into execution. I would say now for each of the major parties, 
the, the game seems to be changing very significantly. They're not used to that. When uh, we talk about fluidity, David, are we talking about the segment of the population that is capable of changing their mind in these last little while? I mean, when we watch the American elections, we know we're talking about a very small number of people who will actually decide it because there's right. locked in a Republican uh, um, a Democrat in terms of the, their, their guaranteed vote. Uh, here, the, that sort of ground, the shifting ground, seems to have increased uh, a lot over the last little while. Um, Canadian politics very different from American politics because theirs is so polarized. And with our three parties, there's a huge movement for change in the country. And that movement for change is more focused on removing Mr. Harper from office than it is on which of the two alternatives particularly replaces him. That makes the voter segment on the center left of the spectrum very, very fluid. There's at least a third of the entire electorate that could vote either NDP or Liberal in this election campaign. On the other side of the spectrum, there's a much smaller group of people, about one-tenth of the population, that might consider moving between the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. That's the 10% of the vote that gave Mr. Harper his majority last time. And the reason he's continuing to attack Mr. Trudeau is he needs that 10% back. It's the only place he can grow from. All right. Next section, tour. Uh, the old days, uh, you know, it used to be seven or eight week campaign. You kind of plotted it out on a map. You knew where you're going to go for each week of the campaign. Mm -hmm. How far along the way are they now in a shorter campaign that could be interrupted by all kinds of things, including debates? Mm -hmm. Well, um, people are scripting campaign tours right now, I would imagine, in the war rooms and somewhere in Ottawa. Um, they're looking at places to hold events. They want to be telling a narrative for their story. So they're looking for locations that help illustrate that narrative where people might uh, be present at a, either a workplace or at a daycare centre uh, that could help tell the story that the party wants uh, to tell in this election. But it's really interesting because, first of all, we, we assume the length of the campaigns going to be 36 days. It could be longer. There's been some musing on that. But you also have to be careful of events that you can't control that will influence the campaign. It was just announced a couple days ago that the Pope will be speaking not only to the U.S. Congress, but also to the U.N. General Assembly in that late September period. He's likely going to make comments on climate change that will have an impact on the election. So what um, smart tour planners are thinking right now is how we can capitalize on that, how we can either minimize the damage or maximize the impact and the bounce. Um, this happened to us you know, when there was the marriage of, um, of uh, Kate and William in 2011, and that took over the news cycle for a few days, and you have to be aware of those things. Really? Did it really take over the news cycle? <laughs> I believe you were there. Just a little wedding. <laughs> Just uh, a little wedding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of the Pope, the one thing he's unlikely to do is to stop here. Correct. On the way or back out from the U.S. on that trip because of an election campaign mm. underway. Let's move it from, uh, from a tour to platform. How far along would people be on platforms? Platforms are done. Uh, they're just a question about when you decide to roll them out. And again, with changing circumstances, do you have to shift the focus or shift the order or shift how you... But that work is all, at least it should be all done is, by now. Are platforms as important as they used to be? in terms of the actual campaign? Well, I think platforms are table stakes in, in many cases. Although every once in a while someone gets away with not having a platform at all. They lose more I, elections than they win. Well, That's often, right. right? I would agree with but you. I, but, but for yeah. example, I think the platform for the New Democrats, if, if, if Mr. Walker is going to convince Canadians that uh, government is safe in his hands, I would suggest that a platform is extremely important for him. Mm -hmm. I think it's less important for the Prime Minister, who Canadians have had 10 years to know uh, how he's going to govern, probably less surprises. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing now Mr. Trudeau all of a sudden is rolling out 
out more and more mm -hmm. of his platform to overcome, you know, to introduce himself and his plans to Keynes. So I think they play different roles for, uh, for different parties. Give me that counter-argument on, on, on platforms, that they, they lose more than they win. Well, because if they're well-crafted, they're probably pretty sound and pretty unadventurous. Um, but if they're poorly crafted, then they can rebound on you. And Canadian politics is replete with these examples mm -hmm. from Robert Stanfield's wage and price controls in the 1974 election to John Turner's poorly costed daycare policies in the 1988 election or most recently Tim Hudak's 100,000 job cuts That's policy right. in the Ontario election. And there's many more examples where the platform ultimately undercut the campaign itself. That's right. I think the, the, the key to platforms is they don't necessarily win elections, but they can actually hurt campaigns a lot. Um, and so that's really important. Also, when announcements are made that aren't included within a platform, I mean, that's happened uh, before, uh, actually, in the campaign that David ran in, in, uh, with Mr. Martin, where he announced the notwithstanding clause in a debate, but it wasn't in the platform, and people were asking why that was. And, mm -hmm. and if we had another hour, we'd, we'd ask David why that was. <laughs> Hail Mary passes. Yeah. Yeah. Hail Mary passes. Yeah. Um, advertising and polling. Um, these are critical in, in, in today's world, the internal polling that's done by parties. Where would that be at this point? Would advertising be already, are you out shooting commercials already? Well, we know the Prime Minister is, he's, he's got a crew tagging along with him, uh, getting material for commercials. But would the concept of the advertising campaign already be in? Place. Concept would be done, B-roll would be shot, the ads may not be assembled yet because you're waiting, of course, to get a little bit closer to it, but all of the campaign teams have a pretty good idea of what they're going to put on air. Why? Because they've got a good idea of what the theory of the campaign is, what the strategy they need to deliver on that theory and the tactics they need to support that strategy. And advertising is just one of the many tactics they've got. So they're pretty certain of where they're going. The trick now is how do you stay true to that and yet be alive for changes that may be taking place? I agree with that a thousand percent with one caveat, which is everybody, every party in this campaign is going to run a negative ad and nobody knows against who yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Or what it is. Because of the simple nature of the yeah. three parties. Right. Yeah, okay, that's and, interesting. The other thing that would be interesting to watch for in this campaign is that we haven't seen innovation in communications in campaigning for a long time. We haven't seen innovation in the way we deliver messages or what our tour pictures look like. Mm -hmm. We've been doing the same thing. Hopefully everyone's been getting better at it each time, but we haven't seen any breakthrough ideas. So that's one thing that people might want to watch for in this campaign. Do people some, do something like different? a guy who has a breakthrough idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'll keep to myself. <laughs> important for viewers to know is that what I think the campaigns are doing right now is thinking about the sequencing of the ads. I, I, I differ with Jamie on just one thing, that I think that certainly the research is done and the messaging and um, the campaign's analysis of what they think the theory of the campaign, as Jamie says, is, is that right now. But I'm not sure if all the ads are in the can yet. They'll still, and, and there'll be ads will be shot closer to E-Day, depending on how things uh, turn out. But I think the sequencing is really important. So what is the party's opening throw going to be? What do you think they're going to move towards in terms of the middle of the campaign? And how do you close? We had to make a decision in the 2011 campaign, to David's point, of are we going to go negative in the end or are we going to make a positive throw? And uh, Jack chose a really positive message to end on as opposed to a negative one. And, and that's decisions that you make within the campaign, at the table, within those 36 days. What about, uh, what about polling, David? Uh, you know, the, the political insiders always say their kind of polling, internal polling, really actually does tell you things as opposed to the public polling uh, right. that we in the media often deal with. What would be happening uh, internal polling-wise at this point? 
Well, first of all, there's a lot of budgetary issues because of this campaign, doing nightly tracking and doing it in a way that actually gives you actionable information in a timely way is expensive. And so if this campaign is longer than the normal writ period, that's going to be a serious budgetary issue mm -hmm. for campaigns to be able to do nightly tracking throughout the whole piece. Uh, the other thing is people are trying to decide probably whether you want to be tracking the entire population or whether you have a set of target ridings out there that you want to be monitoring extremely closely and saying, if these ridings are going the right way, our campaign's going the right way. If these ridings are going the wrong way, our campaign's going the wrong way. Uh, those are two different theories about how to do campaign polling. How many people actually see internal polls? Uh, within the parties? Yeah. Everyone on the senior campaign team would see it. Mm-hmm. Leader and sees it. The leader sees it for sure. And um, no you know how a typical, say. if you're doing overnight tracking like David just described, you are on the phone with your pollster at 6 a.m. every morning, or we were, uh, in the, when, the war, when the campaign was on every morning, getting a debrief. But one of the other things that um, internal polling pulls out is um, where your policies um, have more traction. And you may often look at a gender split. You might say, what gender reacts better to these policies? And for instance, one of the things that we know um, uh, going into past campaigns was if we can increase the gender uh, split, get more women on side, um, then we'll have a more positive outcome in election, positive in terms of our party. Mm -hmm. Quick word on polling. Yeah, I, I think to your point on who shares the polling, I think it's not widely shared, it's, 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 uh, it's, but it's only one tool. And I think what we've learned is polling is important, but we need other data points. What's happening to the money? Is money coming in? Uh, is it going up? Is it going down? Who's giving us their money? Is it the same people that have given to us before? Or all of a sudden, we're we getting all kinds of new people sending in $50, $75, $45. So there's a lot of different things that we put together to make. And that's why you have experienced strategists. Maybe, maybe they, because I'm in the polling industry. But <clears throat> I'm a little bit more suspicious of things that I worry measure enthusiasm, like donations or attendance at rallies or sign-ups on the web than things that measure actual voting intention, uh, like public opinion research. I think you can make some bad decisions if you rely too much on the enthusiasm measures, because even Michael Ignatia, for instance, was getting very enthusiastic reception uh, yes. at crowds, uh, at least early on in yeah. the last campaign. I, I agree with that. The only thing I don't, I think where I differ a little bit is on money, right? Mm -hmm. So I agree on enthusiasm, because for example, one thing, a lot of the, the conservatives tell you in Alberta, they were knocking on doors and getting a great reception because people had given up on them. They weren't even worth fighting about anymore. So you can get it wrong there. Money, I find, would be a good canary in the coal mine. All right, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, this question, what can throw all the best laid plans right out the window? Welcome back to the Insiders and our pre-campaign special. Jamie, Kathleen, and David all at the table tonight. So we've we heard lots of great plans here, what may be happening already. What could change everything? What could throw all of that out the, out the window? Well if, well, if things start going uh, really poorly uh, for your opponent and you have the opportunity to grow, then you start need to move resources into ridings that you thought weren't growth opportunities before. And that's when the campaign manager has to be nimble and quick and move resources quickly to capitalize. But not change the message. Not it's really changing. a resource issue. It's a resource, moving managers, moving money, moving people, buying new radio ads. If, you're, if your opponent's going down, you want to capitalize on that quickly. Jamie. Each of the parties has an Achilles heel. Each of the parties is going to spend the campaign trying to uh, take that Achilles heel and uh, reduce its importance to the electorate. The worst that can go wrong is the candidate or 
in this case his campaign team, makes a mistake, an internal mistake, that proves the Achilles heel to be right. Mm -hmm. That is almost impossible to recover from. David. Uh, it, for me, what always kept me awake was the uh, Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknowns, the thing you could not possibly have anticipated coming out of the blue. Could be a gaffe by your candidate. Think of Mitt Romney saying 47% of the people will never vote for me. Once he'd said that, his campaign was mm -hmm. over. His campaign could not have anticipated that. Second of all, in the Ontario provincial campaign, uh, very late in the process, there was another leak about the OPP investigation into the gas plant issue, our Achilles heel, if you will, yeah. bringing that right back into the new spotlight. So it's those things that come out of the blue that you couldn't anticipate that really throw you off your game. All right, giving us lots to think about. Thanks to you as well out there. The insiders will be off for the next month or so, unless, of course, the real campaign starts really early.